0: From crypto winter to crypto geopolitics, from chat GPT to AI avatars, from zero proof identity to CBDCs and new forms of GovTech. Join inventors, artists, musicians, gamers, bankers, policymakers and rebels for a discussion on how technology is reshaping our world. From our offices in Dubai, this is the UAE Tech Podcast.
1: Was in gaming since 2010 mm. and uh i never thought to like use a blockchain or whatever technology was driving bitcoin you know um in games though there were there was like a big uh, uh, spike in adoption in 2016 17 18 i saw all these use cases i, I you know i even saw axie uh, infinity in 2018 and i yeah. kind of like discarded it now, nah, because I didn't get it how to use NFTs to access a game and like the benefit and whatnot. But when these guys told me to use the blockchain to allow them to use their items in other games that they grinded for and crafted and, you know, uh, spent skill and money to acquire in a game, I lit, uh, a bulb lit up. And it was really, <laughs> uh, it was very motivating. And so here we are with Nifty Craft.
0: So as the UAE Tech Podcast has progressed, we've become more and more interested in gaming. There's a lot of reasons for this. The advent of the metaverse, the idea of 3D technologies driving a new iteration of the internet, hardware from haptic suits to ridiculously expensive VR kits, blockchain-based gaming and NFT markets. It all seems like a lot of high-level themes we're discussing are converging in this space. The big question is the extent to which the Middle East can play a role in this story alongside developing markets like China and India. So it was great to connect with Vincent Gasoub, co-founder of NiftyCraft, for an in-depth on the region, web3 gaming and the future ahead. Against the Horde, till order reigns true, our Nifty Craft story is written by you. Today we're hanging out with Vincent Gasou. Vincent, I hope you liked that intro there for <laughs> Nifty Craft. Uh, so, you know, welcome to the UAE Tech Podcast. Great to have you on the show. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Nifty Craft, a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, hey, John, thank you for having me. You got me with that, at that intro. Uh, thank you. So, yeah, I'm uh, Vincent uh, Gossup, founder of uh, Nifty Craft. We're a blockchain gaming company with a vision of uh, interoperability between games interoperability. So, in a way that my games items can be used in your games and your games item can be used, imported uh, into mine. So, to do that, uh, we're building a solution called Craftware, uh, which is obviously a blockchain-based uh, solution uh, that's... That's one of the uses in gaming where only blockchain can solve it. Um, and uh, we're our own first client. We're building on top of craftware uh, uh, the world of craft which is a 2D sandbox MMO, um, with, w- which will be like the seed of the ecosystem to interoperate with other like-minded uh, Web3 studio games. So kind of like two gears here. Craftware driving the world of Nifty Craft, and the world of Nifty Craft uh, driving Craftware. Mm, really, that idea—the uh, genesis—came very much was very much rooted in uh, my first gaming company, Falafel Games, that I set up. So back then, back it was the first uh, you know the gaming company targeting uh, Arabic speakers. Uh, we did uh, a few free-to-play uh, midcore games with a few million players from the GCC and Saudi. So one of the practices we used to do, and it's not really rocket science, uh, it was basically give one item that can be used um, between games. So the power users loved that. You know, you can have like perks in game one and perks in game two, especially when the games are strategy games and RPG games and the power users are well committed. Um, they used to love it. And one day they came to us and they were like, why don't you let our items work in such and such and such and such games? All these games were not ours, you know? And I thought, they are so naive. <laughs> you know, how can they ask of this? Now I got to go do the BD, uh, do the integrations, the APIs, cheat on the system. And it's just not going to work. No way. Forget about it. We'll keep those items within our own silo. And while well, they were not so naive, they came to me and they were like, yeah, but there's this thing called the blockchain." And ping! It rang in my like a bulb lit in my mind when they said so. You're right, you know. If we use the blockchain, at least we have a hope to have a decentralized system of items between uh, between the games. So let me think about it. Uh, and that led to NiftyCraft. In fact, I had been I had been in Bitcoin since uh, 2012, wow, and you are, gaming really. since yeah, yeah but i had never done the connection myself to yeah. be honest you know? i was in gaming since 2010 mm-hmm. and uh, i never thought to like use a blockchain or whatever technology was driving bitcoin you know um in games though there were there was like a big uh, uh, spike in adoption in 2016 17 18 i saw all these use cases i i you know i even saw axie uh, infinity in 2018 and i yeah. kind of like discarded it now, nah, because I didn't get it how to use NFTs to access a game and like the benefit and whatnot. But when these guys told me to use the blockchain to allow them to use their items in other games that they grinded for and crafted and, you know, uh, spent skill and money to acquire in a game, I lit, uh, a bulb lit up. and it was really, <laughs> uh, it was very motivating. And so here we are with Nifty Craft.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to go back a little because we'll get to interoperability, moving NFTs across ecosystems. That is a great discussion, and I'm glad you raised it from the get-go. We've we've kind of discussed it on previous episodes, but this is one of the most interesting use cases we've had. But also really interesting is kind of the history, a very recent history of video gaming in the region, because that's a, a, a big... Um, topic as well and one that not many people are aware of. So falafel games, you said you were starting that around uh, 2009, 2010 you said whereabouts did you start that and how did it go with kind of you know because I know Arabic gaming in Arab, in the Arabic language is really popular and there were a lot of startups that they went they either went through a lot of trouble or they managed to localize and did really well. What was that experience like you know back in the day before Minecraft, working in that ecosystem?
1: <laughs> so in the early stages uh in the early 2010s it was very lonely <laughs> when you go first of all working so working in games for anyone in the media was like i'm crazy you know and mm-hmm. but back then by the way i founded falafel games in china i was in china I'm like that's another story really? Mumbai, what? I was in china. yeah wow I where about 20? in Hangzhou. Wow. uh the yeah the home of uh, to alibaba so that's where i started it and in china when i told them i'm in mean, games it's normal fine you know it's a big market everybody knows about it but when i tell them i target the mina they used to be like what what the hell is this so now again you know there is like so for for uh people in the mina i was like in games and that's too exotic and for people in china i was targeting the mina and that was too exotic so it was very very lonely yeah um uh, and uh, but uh, we got lucky you know we got uh, a few successes we built uh, so the first uh, title we released was in 2012 it was a web mmo um uh, with authentic arabic content about 300 heroes from the arab conquest um well researched you know like uh, in, in school maybe you learn uh, of a few heroes from the arab conquest futuhat so islamia and arabic uh but we had like hundreds of them um and uh that kind of like led the foundation for uh, our own institutional knowledge and our ability so we moved on with uh, another uh, uh, four or five midcore RPG and mid core strategy games um, in the early in the early and the, by the way from 2010 to 2020 2021 uh, there was no such hype that as you see today in Abu Dhabi and in Riyadh about investments in gaming and gaming is the tip to the meta tip of the spirit to the metaverse and you know let's focus on gaming and e and whatnot um, so we begged <laughs> investors to join us it was really hard to get investment from the region uh except you know from a few very like visionary pioneers um. Now that you know, investment are apparently pouring. Uh, that train is long gone. We we've, we've moved on to be, you know, a more. Uh, uh, at least I've moved on to be, you know, on a more uh, global uh, play with Nifty Craft, and trying to tackle state of the art uh, technical issues uh, with the blockchain and whatnot. Uh, but of course, my heart and my upbringing was with the. Uh, with Mina gaming and I still advise a few companies you know on uh, Mina's issue Mina related issues we've we've farmed uh, ten, uh, more than 10 million players from the GCC so that's uh, not uh, negligible over time um there was a big shift that happened from the early 2010s to the late 2010s and I'll summarize that shift in terms of the value proposition that we could give to the players. So our first few titles in the first half of the 2010s had a very simple value proposition. We would tell our player base, uh, this is not the best game in the world, but this is the most Arabic. They loved it, and they would flock to to the game. And and even the access to gaming was different than later on. Uh, Players would like go to google.com.sa local search engine uh, mm. look with an Arabic keyword alab you know to find games they get ten results two of them are relevant one of them is ours bam fifty percent market share good job yeah. so that has evolved with primarily the emergence and eventually dominance of uh, of the of mobile and of the App Store businesses, platforms on mobile. So basically, Google's Play Store and Apple's App Store. These switch the the uh, the rules of the game to a global arena of competition. So now, you don't have local access to games. In your pocket, you pick up your phone, and you have thousands of new games a week from all over the place, from Vietnam and you know, the UK and Finland and US, China, whatever. Um, so really, I mean, they say they let, uh, the, uh, they make the level field uh, that way, but at the same time, because of the uh, crowding out effect, the barrier became much higher. Um, and, and with that, with that, the user expectation, the MENA user expectation and the taste of the MENA user. So now you could not tell that player this is the most Arabic game, though not the best one, so come and play it. Now you must tell them, this is a world-class game. And, by the way, Cherry on Top, it's got some Arabic elements. So that's the new playbook of uh, the second half of the 2010s. So that's why you see you know, all the titles that are globally uh, very... Um, uh, the popular, you know, the popular title globally are also leading in uh, in the MENA, and they do always like slightly better if they if they have an extra layer of uh, of localization. Now there are, there are a few genres, uh, some card games, you know, word games, trivia games that require by definition uh, necessarily native content, not even Arabic content. Like you know, even Arabic content uh, between countries may not work anymore if you're targeting, for example, trivia games. So, or card games, like, you know, the behaviors, uh, the long-standing behaviors of players. So these can, were kind of resilient to this change, uh, but that change changed the game uh, for most other genres over time. So what Falafel Games did is uh, we, we moved on with this change, and uh, it helped us, actually, that pressure helped us uh, develop our... Uh, our uh, tech stack, our technology that we've we've been building, we, because we focused on very few genres from the beginning, so we've been building it for years and years, and you know we had to build it even better and better, and helped us get to the uh, to like uh, some border of uh, operational excellence with it, uh, and that had had you know me a lot, you know, get a good uh, jump start with uh, nifty Craft. Yeah, that's a great overview. It's
0: really interesting. Thanks for that, and. I know there's all sorts of um tricks in regard to you know localization and arabic language and kind of the culture of what games people like to play and how they play them so i guess understanding that stuff is almost like a secret source, you know um but going back to nifty craft um you began whole conversation today with
1: this uh sorry john uh, excuse me sorry to cut you speaking of that secret sauce very quickly there are quite a few successful studios uh or publishers and or publishers in the minna that when you see their titles you don't see any element of arabic explicitly you don't see arabic content you just see the language it's in arabic but they're actually operating it under the hood made for arabic players behavior Mm -hmm. uh the live ops the events they do how they price things how they do the discounts how they do the focus on competition and all that stuff that is really tailored to the arabic players is happening under the hood and that's part that's largely also part of uh, localization and part of the secret sauce yeah
0: it's fascinating isn't it because it's really hard to point to that stuff and to put it on a balance sheet or put it in you know, pitch that to investors. A team either understands it or they don't. But I do think that plays kind of a role in success that is often undervalued. And understanding those things about the local market that are really subtle can often be the difference between, as you kind of hinted at, you know, a success or a very big success or, or long-standing popularity. I know that because I've nope. had a couple of a couple of friends. From Jordan and Lebanon, in, 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 around the same time as you were doing Falafel Games in this space, and they'd often tell me this kind of stuff. And I remember reading a—it's a, completely different example, right? But I remember reading uh, this funny article on video gaming in Japan because I used to, you know, I play video games since I was seven years old, and I used to get all these video game nice. And there's this article about why are Japanese games in English with Japanese subtitles? It's like why? Why are they doing that? And apparently, it was yeah. like in, cer- in certain genres, not not in all genres, but there were certain genres in Japan, like I think the Resident Evil was one example, where it was kind of cool to have English voices with Japanese subtitles, even if the game developers offered you the Japanese vocals. So it's yeah. Kind of, you know, like every model yeah. is kind of different. So it is fascinating, yeah. and 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 that's I guess where you know. One of the things about gaming that I think often gets missed is it's, it's a creative industry. It's a creative industry where you need cultural understanding, you need kind of a sense of artistry and you have to combine that with developing skills and design skills yeah. and story, storytelling yep. skills. And I yep. think that's a really interesting conversation to have to have, you know, this is one of the industries in the Middle East. Where it's not just about development, it's also about um, creativity, local culture, and design, and that seems yeah. to sometimes get missed. You know what I
1: mean? Yeah, 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 totally. Uh, I have an anecdote that rhymes with your uh, Japan experience, Resident Evil, and uh, you know the use of language. So our si- we have a silent uh, hit, <laughs> kind of it's called action anime that we launched in 2016. That's our actually financially speaking our best performing title, but the least known, um, and. Uh, so it's basically a uh, squad RPG, you collect a bunch of heroes, and these heroes look like anime characters, um, and you just have to evolve them over time, uh, and you battle them against other players and against other uh, monsters. Um, the, so the premise of it was a, an increase in anime adoption in uh, Saudi, but the absence of anime-based uh, games. So we went for that. Uh, it, it, it worked well. And the original messaging, believe it or not, was that uh, this game was made in Japan. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> made in Japan. We had made it. Uh, but, you know, if we tell them, hey, we're like, you know, your, your next door neighbor and we're doing these anime characters, we'll be like looked down upon. So we had to say the game is a Japanese game that we're bringing to you. And it worked well. And um, But then when it started to get to its... Uh, so it's uh, you know midlife crisis and about, you know, we harvested all we can harvest and it's going to go through a s- uh, slow but painful decline. We looked for ways to revive it. And one of the ways was to make Arabic-inspired anime characters. So you'd have these guys with, you know, uh, Arabic uh, garb and, like, anime-style Arabic garb, you know, even the large eyes, the, <laughs> the, the strokes, the shades, uh, Carrying uh, carrying uh, shields with uh, uh, falcons of fire on made of fire with the shape of a falcon and things like that, um, and we started releasing these heroes into the game, uh, trickling down into the, trickling them into the game, and it was a fiasco. They hated. it. They were like, no, 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 anime should be Japanese, keep it <laughs> Japanese. <laughs> so so some things are free. I mean, we had to, like experienced all extremes. Our uh, our maiden game you know was arab conquest and very realistic and more arabic than that i die and you know they on the anime side when we tried to put a small hint of arabic it was a revolution so there is yeah as you said it's there's there's some like local insights local cultural understanding resonance that needs to occur for for a title to you know take the oxygen it can take for in the market
0: yeah, that's super interesting. I would never have guessed. I'd have assumed that, you know, the anime characters speaking Arabic would have been more popular. It's kind of crazy. <coughs> um, Super interesting. Yeah, anyway, so look, getting back to, we're going to fast forward like over a decade and get back to where we are now. So we've done a couple of episodes on Play2One to Earn Gaming, right? We've had debates over how much is this about making money and selling nfts and how much is this about playing video games and having fun right just which is what we all like to do but i think your point on interoperability is super important right and and you called it kind of craftware or something like that where you can basically move power-ups and nft items across games presumably in the nifty craft portfolio right so you know, you can move it from whatever it is, one RPG to an adventure game or whatever. And I guess, is that important? Because then power users who spent 48 hours or weeks creating craft where leveling up can move those items or or sell those items across different games within the same ecosystem. How does it all work? Uh, What are you thinking? What is the, you know, what is the business use case here? Yeah, so...
1: I think uh, it's uh, more than important I think it's inevitable uh, but it will take its time to uh, to take to take shape and take place um, let me tell you why it's inevitable uh, imagine a scenario a few years from now where a web3 game or a bunch of web3 games have you know which were invested in in the 2020 2021 2022 took their time to mature and to build well and they reached the quality of let's say final fantasy hmm? and so now you have an option of playing Final Fantasy, traditional conventional gaming, or someone uh, another game uh, that, is, that offers you the capability of uh, moving, uh, carrying over to other games, the items that you grind for, that you pay for, and that you were lucky in receiving or skilled in getting in a game. So what's your choice as a player? There's no way you choose the first one, the first option, the conventional option where your items are locked. It is inevitable that you choose the, um, the option of uh, having true digital ownership. So once that occurs as the infection point, the tipping point, uh, at which you, know, you will have all the VIPs who play games, who are about, you know, we are about three billion players today. Uh, on the planet and maybe about 300 million uh, are paying users uh, so these guys will move tip over to the to the second proposition um now it needs time to occur um but uh, it, there's i mean it will be quite uh, quite hard <laughs> for any of those vip players to tell you no you know what i've been playing i've been uh, spending in a game where the value of my spending stays locked in it and i'm happy with that I, I i don't see how they can say that um now the scale of this of this value that is sunk into uh, in buying items inside of games is about 110 billion dollars a year so that's what we're talking about in terms it's of intricate. it's like it
0: yeah yeah
1: it's and 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 it accumulates over years so today we pay 110 you know maybe we've uh, burned about uh, 55 billion out of them and the rest are permanent items that are still there but locked and then year after year it's been 10 15 years of free to play gaming that this these items are accumulating so can you imagine the pie where you know that we're trying to bust it's maybe a trillion dollars um so that's kind of like <clears throat> the uh the, over, the You know, the bottoms-up reason why this is going to be inevitable, but also the top-down kind of like scaling of uh, of, of its uh, impact. Um, now, in terms of, you know, how we're going, there's a lot of, uh, we have a lot of peers and friends in the industry trying to tackle the problem, and many are tackling it in a different way. Uh, what we're trying to do is, provide actually first provide the developers uh, a solution to um, make their life easier in crafting items so item crafting basically you know you have uh, two pieces of wood two pieces of metal you put them together uh, you come up with a hammer you put a hammer with some stardust uh, you enchant the hammer and so on and so forth so you have a whole supply chain of these uh, combinations so we call them let's call them crafting recipes. We make their life easier in uh, doing the crafting recipes, so we provide them a solution, um, uh, a middleware uh, that they use in uh, their development to do this this crafting. It saves them, you know, maybe tens of thousands of dollars in resources They can focus on the gameplay, Um, but by doing so, it gives us the opportunity to sign items for export using NFT protocols and other blockchain-based protocols, uh, as well as uh, import items from other games and mutate the properties of items that are imported from other games. So uh, our our focus is not to import the image or the skin or the shape. We have peers working on that where the ready player me allows you to move your avatar, avatar from yeah. yeah, from game to game and originally and they still are a uh, solution for uh, making the developers life easier in creating that avatar. Mm-hmm. That's perfectly valid. You know, we're mm-hmm. trying to focus more on the data on on the economics of the of the items so for example a sword of attack 10 in your game means nothing like the 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 stat of attack 10 doesn't translate to anything in my game so how do i mutate that property and make it meaningful and you know how game designers are very jealous and about uh, their uh, game design and how actually game economies are very fragile things. So you need to find a way to let the importer decide how they want to do that. So we provide them with um, with uh, a library to mutate the properties. Uh, let's say you know a sort of 10, 10 of uh, power ten in your game becomes uh, ten to the power two <laughs> in my game or whatever. You know yeah. you, say, you can change you can mutate them. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully hopefully, this can create um, the possibility for some users other than just like having the option of like moving their items around, but also finding sort of jobs. So let's say you're very skilled in producing uh, orbs in game A. Uh, you just like you play really well and you're able to use orbs and orbs are an ingredient to form, uh, uh, I don't know, trinkets in uh, game B. Yeah, so there you go, you have a job now. Uh, if you're really good at uh, at uh, farming orbs in game A, and someone in game B wants these orbs to create uh, those trinkets, um, you may find inefficiencies there because of your added skill as a player in the virtual world, and you can get a job as an orb maker. And <clears throat> in fact, one of the reasons why myself, I, I am so much passionate about my job, and I think my job is the best job in the world, is uh, to some degree this, uh, this angle uh, whereby it has to do with the survival of our species. You know, maybe going like down a, a philosophical rabbit hole, but I think about it from time to time. And especially now with like the huge uh, acceleration and adoption of uh, artificial intelligence, this time around, I hope not, but this time around, there is a chance that automation via AI destroys jobs faster than it creates. Um, you know, every previous uh, wave of automation, we always had that fear: agrarian to industrial, industrial to technical, and whatever, and then to, to financial, then to information. We always had that fear that automation is going to destroy the jobs. There was always a, a short period of transition and reskilling, and the pie kept growing and jobs kept growing. But this time around, I hope not, but it could be dis- destructive much faster than it is creative. So we may end up in a situation where, you know, it's kind of like a Hunger Games scenario where you have the few uh, well-offs living in their old uh, ivory towers, and their Elysium, and everyone else in the ghetto. And you and I and most, you know, normal folks in Dubai are probably ending up in the ghetto, because we're not like a billion-dollar-plus kind of uh, wealth wealth uh, holders. Um, so, so what so do we we'll have, we'll have be, to do? we
0: Willow will be crafting items in Nifty Craft, right?
1: And via craftware. So that's you mentioned that Nifty Craft, like it, the items have to be within Nifty Craft's ecosystem. They don't have to. That's I mean, the whole premise. That's the whole genesis you, of the you know, idea.
0: I, I get what you're saying completely. I mean, we... To add to what you say about AI removing jobs, we had an interview with one girl in South Africa. Uh, she, actually, well, she was kind of from a podcast, and then we, we took it in a different direction with, with another speaker. But she said this, which I thought was crazy. So there's the AI point that you made. And then she said, look, I'm based in, between Cape Town and Johannesburg. And where yeah. I live, it's almost impossible now for a millennial or a Gen Z person to afford an apartment or even get a really good job that lets you raise a decent family, you know, with a good lifestyle. Mm -hmm. She said, it's incredibly difficult. And so we've been pushed out of the physical economy. So we Mm -hmm. have no choice but to create a metaverse or a digital economy where we can be creative, where we can ship items, where we can create new digital markets and where there's much less structures that can stop us and hold us back and i thought wow yeah. that's kind of that's sad but also really fascinating
1: yeah yeah well it is it is a uh well it's true and south africa is like you know traditionally known as one of the lands of like huge uh, disparity also so and it's uh, kind of unsurprising to me that uh it it's taking place you know there um uh, more 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 pronounced than in other places um but, yeah, I mean... But, but I see, guess what I not,
0: so, so that, that was actually my next question for you, was, you, and you kind of hinted at it, and I know Tim Sweeney, the CEO of Epic Games, has suggested something like, you know, these, these new markets, these game NFT markets, but more broadly, the idea of entire gaming worlds with hundreds of millions of players with their own micro-digital economy, he basically said that opportunity is worth trillions of dollars, Um, And this is the future of a lot of the internet. You know, it's not just like games. It's a lot of people are going to start Mm. participating in these worlds. So I guess that's what I I wanted to to ask you about as well. You're kind of building an NFT game economy. Do you agree with that? And also, what do you think about VR and the metaverse, some of these spatial computing, some of these emerging um, Mm. phrases that kind of want to make the game immersive, three-dimensional and all around you?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I do agree with. I mean, Tim Sweeney is taking it in a in a way I really admire because he's not being very um, dogmatic about. Um, about uh, like let's use this nft protocol or let's use blockchain he's just being very practical about uh, making uh, interoperable components uh, and immersive components and empowering creators to create uh, to create content to these worlds so for example recently he launched the uh, you know unreal for fortnite Uh, Opened up some tech to create content inside of Fortnite, and great things are starting to come out. And Fortnite uses a free engine called the Unreal Engine, which other people can use for other things. So he's kind of like putting all these pieces together. Sometimes using blockchain, sometimes not using it. But it's a good. um, uh, I mean, it's a it's an approach. Let's say that fits uh, Epic Games. Uh, Yeah, it is,
0: and I guess every game developer has their own approach, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, we cannot be so multifaceted. We're focused on uh, interoperability. We're presenting our own solution for interoperability uh, for people who, uh, well, basically are in, conventional, in between conventional gaming and uh, Web3 gaming, but also purely Web3 gaming. Um, it, we are using the blockchain for that because we don't know how to do it otherwise. Maybe if it's only within your own ecosystem, you can create an economy. But when you have to deal between economies, you need uh, you need some rules. So today, like the way I think about it, is games. Though they're you know it's a big market, and we three billion players play games. We're in a very rudimentary state, whereby yeah. each game economy doesn't talk to the to the other. So imagine two hundred countries that don't trade between each other. You have to dig your own oil or create your own energy, and then. Uh, manufacture your own goods and consume your own goods or locally without uh, exporting or importing. I mean, where would we be? We'd, we'd still be cavemen, right? And this is where gaming is. Today, I cannot walk with my Nike shoes into an Adidas store in games or in virtual world. So very early, and it's true. I mean, like, looking at how early we are compared to where we should be, I think, no doubt, you know, like so there will be many ingenuous, uh, uh, many humans with a lot of ingenuity uh able to create uh, business models uh, around yeah. this uh, around this transformation so no everyone,
0: doubt yeah i mean everyone needs to to go and watch ready player one but um vincent <laughs> some really uh really interesting observations and specific points today on some of how this is developing before you go i wanted to ask you another kind of big question and elephant in the room to what extent do you think indie, you know, I'm not sure I like that phrase, but game developers such as yourselves and indie game developers, and people who are really experimenting and doing great things, are going to be able to compete with the likes of the AAA public game publishing Goliaths in the future? Do you think there's going to be a merger or do you think this is going to be consolidated and the big gaming companies are going to really shape the future in a way that's difficult for, for a lot of game companies to compete against. How do you think it's going to play out over the coming years?
1: Yeah, I think, I think both. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, large gaming companies are well positioned, but they will move much slower. And it's you know, it's evident these days that all large conventional yeah. uh, gaming companies are are reluctant, just like they were reluctant to adopt a mobile early on. I mean, Activision only entered mobile by buying the biggest mobile game company, King Online, for six billion dollars. Uh, you know, and and many others only entered free to play before mobile uh, via acquisitions. So. We are kind of blessed you know with like the movement in our market uh, it's very creative it's very dynamic it's very young so there's a blessing to always be innovative even on the pc platform today you see amazing amazing small studios doing small games with huge innovations um i don't see that uh fading away anytime uh near uh, because there's so many new technologies so many changes coming up so there will always be these opportunities so the end game may be maybe a situation where you do end up with a few goliaths but uh, the mid game is very fragmented the early game super fragmented and most of the most of the value in the early game will be created by uh, by startups it's very it's, it, in particular on the uh, on the uh, blockchain side on the ai side even and on web3 uh the, uh, the, the the startups are are showing uh, more traction than the large companies. Now the large companies, maybe in AI, it's it's debatable. A lot of large companies are already well positioned in AI, Facebook, Google, you know the, the usual ones. They have good infrastructure. they have the computing power to do that. But in Web3 and blockchain now they're they're very in, uninnovative and slow. So it gives us a very good opportunity for all the little ones.
0: Sponsor information. The UIE Tech Podcast is distributed by Alba Weber Business free of charge. To sponsor a single episode or a series of themed episodes, please contact our editorial team or download a sponsorship press pack. Sponsors receive an article on AlbaWeber business, syndication distribution on AlbaWeber syndicate, email direct marketing across the region, and brand inclusion across all podcast marketing design, audio, and video formats. AlbaWeber is not a PR company, and we do retain editorial discretion and quality control as an independent publisher. Companies looking to support a dialogue on technological transformation in the UAE are encouraged to contact our team.